Welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you here for a special episode. We've got a guest that we're looking forward to interviewing. But before we get to him, let me just introduce myself. Uh, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest. I've written a number of books. One of those books is in the house of Tom Bombadil. I've taught philosophy. I've been a commercial real estate investor and yada, yada, yada. That's enough about me. How about you, Tom? Tom Price. I teach systematic theology, Christian ethics, philosophy, apologetics, and one of the places is Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. One of our members, uh, or one of the pugs in the podcast, can't be with us today. That's Glenn. Glenn had a health emergency in the family. Glenn and his wife, Lynn, are fine. And uh, we'll probably be able to fill you in when we know a little more. But it's someone close enough to Glenn and Lynn that they really need to be there by his side at this time. But we'll let you know. Just keep them in prayer and that situation in prayer. And we'll fill you in on the details, as I said. But we've got a guest today, an author, uh, someone that uh, we're looking forward to to hearing from. This is Michael. Michael, why don't you introduce yourself and uh, tell us a little bit about your background and so forth. Uh, We've got a you know, a very diverse audience in terms of the range of people who listen to the show. So go ahead and just fill this in on whatever you think is relevant for us to know, particularly as it relates to the subject of the book. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, uh, the elevator pitch for me, I guess, is uh, I'm a contributing editor at the American Conservative. Uh, I'm an editor at Sophia Institute Press, um, which is a Catholic publisher. I was the editor of Crisis Magazine. Um, I, before that I worked as the U S editor of the Catholic Herald, which is a London based Catholic magazine. Um, and my, most of my work right now goes to my Substack, which is called the common man. And, uh, I'm working on a new book called, uh, the times are wretched, which comes from a, a sermon from St. Augustine. It's going to be published by Sophie Institute press. But, uh, the, my first book, which was published a couple years ago is called the reactionary mind. And, uh, I believe that that's what, Principally interests you about me right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, Mike, it's uh, I, I think it's good for us to, to tell people, you know, your full name. It's Michael Warren Davis. Your 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 name on the screen is just Mike Davis. But if they type in Mike Davis looking for your book, they might not find it. So just so you, so they know that, that that it's under your full name. And uh, but that's the title of the book, The Reactionary Mind. It's got a derby and a mustache, and that's going to sort of. Uh, I think, uh, create and a monocle. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> so I think, uh, the combination of those, uh, those elements will appeal to, to many people who listen to our show. But, um, the subtitle of the book, which is fun to consider is why conservative is not enough. So let's, let's get into that. Cause you, you work with this, you draw, you make it, you, you draw it, uh, uh, a, a definition or, or present a definition of uh, the reactionary and use it uh, and you contrast it with the conservative. So can you, can you kind of spell that out a little bit? Because uh, I, I think for some of our listeners, um, they might not uh, get the distinction just uh, without an explanation. Of course. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that for as long as I've been a journalist or reading the me following the media, um, reading books about political philosophy or whatever, um, and probably for considerably longer as well. Um, the consensus I think is is more or less been that the conservative movement is useless. Um, it doesn't do anything. It does. It you know the the it seems like the more um, 
invested we become in conservative politics, the more money we give to conservative politicians, the more conservative magazines proliferate, um, the more we lose, the more setbacks we suffer, the more hostile what the West becomes to people of traditional Christian sensibilities. And, um, and I think that that's, I think that there, that's because there's a flaw in, in, at the foundations of what it means to be a conservative. Um, but that we can probably get into that if you want to, but, um, basically the reason the conservative isn't enough is, uh, is because there's nothing left to conserve in the West. Um, everything that we know and we love and that we cherish and that forms good Christian men, good Christian values is gone. That's why I say that we have to, and that's, that's why the conservative movement keeps failing. And it's why I say that we have to be reactionaries because it's not enough to try to preserve what we have. Now we have to go back and reclaim what we've lost. Now, a lot of people use reactionary in a pejorative sense, obviously people on the left, and you're not, uh, you know, using it in that way. So spell out what you mean by reactionary. I, I like that it, it's pejorative. That's part of why I... I it's sort of I like saying Yankee it. or something. Right. Like <laughs> Depends on where you're from, yeah. <laughs> the, um, no, I like, I like that reactionary is a, is a pejorative because it sort of takes the wind out of the left sails. Because, you, you know, you say my, my book, The Reactionary Mind, is to give the, um, the, the really offensive version which is also, I mean, accurate. You know, it's about why it's good to burn heretics. It's about why it's good to burn dude <laughs> art. They say that sounds totally reactionary. You say, yeah, that's the title of the book. What else do you got? <laughs> Where am I wrong? Where's the lie? So I, and I think that that's so important because so much of the reason that conservative politics fails and so much of the reason that we're losing is because we're so not us personally, but our leaders are so susceptible to tone policing. Yeah. It's so easy to bully them into being nice and PC. And, yeah. uh, and that's what I, I, I mean, it's, it just, you know, it, it makes, it, it gives me the willies, but um, you just got to get in front of that. You gotta, you gotta stop it before it even starts. You have to get right out in front of it and say, no, you're not gonna, you're not gonna call me names. You're not going to browbeat me. I'm not going to be. I'm not going to be. You know, the nice controlled opposition. I'm. I'm a reactionary. And if you want to, if you want to tell me I'm wrong, do you have to actually tell me why I'm wrong? You can't just tell me that I'm mean. Yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> right, right. That's great. You know, in our circles, uh, we we refer to what you what you're getting at here with this sort of niceness as uh, either third wayism or winsomeness, hmm. and uh, and so in the reformed world. Uh, we have plenty uh, of people who are, I guess, the reformed version of the uh, U.S. Council of Catholic Bishops. You know, if you, you know what I'm getting at, it's just that that kind of like we, we just want to make sure that everybody, when they when they think of us, think about the things that bring, you know, smiles to everyone's face and never <laughs> offend anybody. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there are some great chapter titles uh, in this book. The introduction is entitled The Happy Warrior. That was great. Uh then uh, the first part of the book is more or less, I would say, you know, uh, an attempt to sort of recover the past. Yeah. Um, and so, the, you know, chapter one, the reactionary's dreams of heaven uh, Two, the reactionary's code, loyal and joyful. Three, why the reactionary has a sneaking suspicion for 
Savonarola, which is a <laughs> fun one. We ought to get into that one a little bit. Yeah. Uh, reactionaries defend the Inquisition. That's another one that we got to get into a bit. Uh, why reactionaries don't follow the science. That's timely. Why reactionaries don't worship reason. That one we can dig into a bit. I think that's an interesting one. Why a reactionary would like to abolish politics. <laughs> so, you know, in other words, a reactionary is not like living on uh, cable television news and like thinking about the latest whatever is being voted on in the House uh, every <laughs> single moment of the day. Uh, reactionary working man paging Ned Ludd. I think we're talking about the Luddites here. Uh, <laughs> the reactionary American, which is an interesting uh, title because some people on the left claim that uh, America is, is essentially liberal. So it'd be good to get into that. Then against progress. So there's a, there's a, that's just part one. Part two is a, also got some great things, but we'll, maybe we'll have some time to get to part two in a minute. But uh, let, let's get into uh, some of these. Let's, uh, Savonarola, you know, Tom and I were talking about a little bit about him. I think uh, what, if you could sum up, uh, Mike, uh, what the popular impression of Savonarola is. And then give us your reason why uh, we should say some other things about him. <laughs> yeah, sure. That's my ecumenical chapter because uh, the, the best Catholics and the best Protestants all like Savonarola. Uh, the, the popular impression, obviously, is um, I, I strongly suspect that most people sort of 40 and under who have even heard of Savonarola know him from one of the Assassin's Creed games where he's this, <laughs> he's this, um, he's this squeaky voiced cowardly fanatic who uses alien technology to control <laughs> everyone's minds. And, um, and it's just amazing how they can, how people can take this, you know, this heroic figure and reduce him to, because, but that is the, but in a way it's instructive because that is, that is the only way that a modern person can can rationalize who Savonarola is, right? Because the the truth, which is that he never held public office, because he maintained his power through his from from the pulpit. I mean, he he never he never had any authority over anyone. It was just that he spoke, and people listened and did what he said because they knew that he was good and wise. Um, mm. That 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 blows people's minds. It's a category error. But um, yeah. so the, the popular impression of Savonarola is of this, yeah, this religious fanatic who for a couple of years ruled Florence uh, with an iron fist, presume, and uh, the, 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 what everyone knows, right, is the bonfire of the vanities. Yeah. Where, uh, yeah. He would allegedly send his, his teen, teenage boys into people's houses to take all of their art, all of it, and all of their books, all of their books, except maybe the Bible. <laughs> And uh, and and all of their you know lavacious clothing, and then put them in the big piles in the streets and set them on fire. <laughs> and uh, that is that is sincerely what probably probably ninety nine percent of people who have again who have heard of Savonarola, which is a very small minority, but of the people who have heard of Savonarola, that's what they think he is. Hmm. So what was he? So you you, you describe a different man. Uh, in your chapter, can you dig into that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. The uh, Savonarola, very early on in his life, felt a call to be a a preacher. Um, he he had visions, literal visions of 
of um, of plagues and of, of catastrophes uh, being visited on the Italy, the part of uh, the part of Italy where he lived around Florence, and um, and he was he was born to a very good the, the Savonarola family. His his grandfather was uh, was the court physician to a uh, a. Uh, one of the local princes. So he, he came from a very, very good family. He was expected to follow his grandfather in his footsteps um, and become a, a, you know, a, court, a the court physician for this, uh, this illustrious noble family. But he felt this irresistible call to become a preacher, to, uh, to, to uh, really to warn people, to be, to be a prophet, to warn people that, um, that, that terrible things were going to happen to Italy unless the people repented and, and, and tr- tried to follow God. Um, so he, he becomes a Dominican, ends up becoming a Dominican friar, um, is, uh, and is, you know, develops a reputation quite early on as a preacher and is actually invited to Florence by the Medici family. Mm -hmm. Uh, they, uh, they give him the, basically they give him control of the, um, the friary, is it San Marco, I think. And, uh, and so he establishes himself there, but of course, who better exemplifies the the kind of the decadence and the corruption that Savonarola right. feared than the Medici? So he becomes this <laughs> he becomes this thorn in the Medici side, and um, and so there's this they can't they can't get rid of him because they don't technically own the monastery, right? It's the church. Um, so he's preaching about to people about how the, the 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 tyrant these tyrants who are exploiting the poor and the Medici have to reform their ways, and you know the uh, the rich have to have to stop exploiting and abusing the poor and this and that. And, uh, and he's in, you know, he's, he's really preaching about the dangers of the excesses of the Renaissance, the dangers of the excesses of humanism. And, uh, so he becomes this kind of strikingly countercultural figure. What's fascinating is that when Lorenzo de' Medici is, is on his deathbed, um, he has, you know, usually Francis, unfortunately, usually Franciscans who are sort you know, sort of his court priests, and he's surrounded by these um, by these these priests that he's been you know, keeping as house pets, uh, and uh, but he but he knows that he's you know he's he's on he's at the end of his life, and so um, he says he says bring me Savonarola, he's, and they say no you know your excellency it's not you know you don't want to talk to him and they say and he he says you know I'm surrounded by sycophants. You, none of you care about my soul. You only care about my money. I want to talk to Savonarola. <laughs> and so Savonarola, they bring him in, and, uh, and Lorenzo says, you know, Friar, what do I have to do to go to heaven? And Savonarola says, do you, do you want to know? Do you really want to know? <laughs> and he <laughs> says, yes. He says, you have to give back all the money that you took from the poor. You have to give back all the wealth that you took um, that with, by, by exploiting um, the children of God. And um, Lorenzo refuses, and Savonarola says, then I will not give you absolution, and he leaves. And he, Lorenzo dies, you know, and as what yeah. Catholics would say, not, not, feels, does not die in a state of grace. Um, so what's interesting about that, Mike, is that, you know, as, we, as you noted, people associate Savonarola with a kind of puritanical... Uh, approach to the arts yeah. uh, with the bonfire, the vanities and so forth. But what you're sh- showing us is that what was you know really offensive to the Medici was uh, his 
you know, calling them to repent over their exploitation of uh, people who were vulnerable economically in in uh, Florence, which is sort of odd. You would think that would make him a, uh, like a, a hero to you know people on the left who are looking for people like that. Mm. And he's and 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 uh, uh, Lorenzo is surrounded by Franciscans. She said, which so, is yeah. another kind of interesting thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who, who who would have been considered the advocates of you know. Uh, voluntary <laughs> poverty and all that. <laughs> right. Yeah. You can bribe just about anyone. I will say, I'm, <laughs> I, I, I do personally, you know, much prefer the Franciscan in the Franciscan spiritual tradition, but on, um, yeah, you can, uh, you can, I, the other thing that I like to remind people is that the Franciscans actually contributed more inquisitors than the Dominicans. The, uh, so <laughs> there's, uh, it's, history's never what you expect. But um, <laughs> no, but no. For, for Savonarola, the, um, the the economic and the sort of the moral abuses and decadence went hand in hand, which of course is true. And uh, so I, I will get to the I will get to the part that I think everyone <laughs> wants to hear, which is about oh. the bonfires. Let, let me before oh, you jump in tell you sure. just a, 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 a humorous aside, but it's related. I remember during my student years at Duke Chapel, which happens to have right above the chapel doors several saint figures. One of those figures, um, well, well, before I get to one of the figures, um, the, the the dean of the chapel was giving a sermon to us students upon entering, and he was talking about one day he saw in his audience a guy in a white outfit who looked very familiar. <laughs> and when he was at the at the end of the service, he, it was he confirmed it was Tom Wolf. Um, and Tom Wolf asked uh, Will Williman, he was the chaplain at the time. He said, "Who is that one figure that's standing above us? That statue? I recognize the other." And he goes, "Oh, that's Savonarola." <laughs> and Tom Wolfe's response was, "Only the church would pull a stunt like that." And then he walked <laughs> off. And when you're talking about bonfire, the vanities, and Duke Chapel, which is right in the heart of big tobacco money and all this this arrogance and prestige with these degrees, watching over every student who enters and exits that chapel door upon graduation, there is Savonarola. That's <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> I have to admit, yeah. when you said the white suit, I thought you were going to say it was Savonarola and his Dominican. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you had a vision of Savonarola in it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, St. Philip Neri had a vision of Savonarola, and uh, with his, the Savonarola was going up, was his, uh, the, the Vatican was posthumously just, just determining whether to, uh, whether to have him basically stricken from the record to permanently anathematize. And um, St. Philip Neri went in, they, they went to St. Philip Neri and he said, uh, he said, they said, you know, will you, will you pray and tell us, you know, if, if everything's going to go well, the Dominicans did. And so St. Philip said, yes. And he went away and he came back and he said, everything will be fine. <laughs> and so the, the, uh, the, the, the Vatican court um, rehabilitated Savonarola okay. after having martyred him. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So tell us about the bonfire of the vanities. Go into that a little bit more if you want to, or you'd like to. Absolutely. So there's this whole really cool um, story about the French invading Italy and Savonarola getting them to to leave uh, Florence alone. Um, it's probably too long for for right now, but uh, but 
But basically what happens is Savonarola saves the city from being plundered by the French. The Medici flee. They actually side with the French. Um, and then the people, they don't put him, it would be wrong to say that they put him in power because, again, he never even holds a symbolic office. He's just the, he's a prophet, right? He's, he, rule, he rules the city as a prophet. He's a moral leader um, enacting incredible political reforms, banning usury, founding um, uh, basically uh, credit unions that give low interest loans to the poor to help try to level the economic system, um, creates a new more, he, he, he leads the drafting of a, constitu- a new constitution that leads to more democratic institutions in the city to prevent the return of oligarchy. And uh, so all good things, but again, through the whole the whole time, he's uh, he's really a symbolic leader. He's a, he's just a friar that everyone knows and respects, and and they believe what he says, so they do it. And um, and so before um, Ash Wednesday, um, before the beginning of Lent one year, um, he he says to the people, instead of having your Mardi Gras celebrations, instead of having Carnival, right. Um, instead of you know spending the, the the days before Lent sinning more, right, and and uh, and and uh, and really going against the letter of and the spirit of Christianity, um, why don't you actually prepare yourself for Lent? Um, and he said one way to do that is to um, he said he said there's there's so there's so many. In women in indecent clothes all over the city that I, you know, there are, um, there are so many filthy, you know, pornographic books and, uh, and paintings and, uh, in the city. And he, and this, this needs, and I, I apologize, it gets a little bit graphic, but there is, um, there is a specific genre of painting at that time that is explicitly pornographic, um, that was painted and owned by, uh, bought, sorry, painted and bought by, wealthy Italians to hang in their bedrooms to act uh, the same way yeah. the playboy acts right in later days right. so this is, right. this is um this is explicitly an intentionally pornographic art he hmm. says bring out these pornographic books bring out these um, these pornographic paintings bring out your lewd clothing he said and destroy them so that you know you're not in this habit of you know, sinning, 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 you're virtuous for Lent, sin, and then you go back to sinning, right? right. He right. says, make permanent reforms in your life. And this is what the this is what the bonfire, the vanities are. They're A, they're totally voluntary. No one was ever forced to uh to give up any of their possessions. Um and B, they were um it, it, it's absolutely untrue that you know all nude uh, all art that depicts nude figures was destroyed. It was, um, Savonarola approved of nudity in art. Um, he, he believed that there was a way to do it tastefully, which is why among his strongest supporters in the city were Michelangelo and Botticelli. Um, hmm. some of the greatest artists of the, I mean, the greatest artists of the Renaissance were huge admirers of Savonarola because not only was he a great moral leader, but you know, this is, um, it's, it's the beauty of holiness. He recognized that yeah. art that is, fundamentally indecent can't truly be beautiful he said that if you take two women who are equally beautiful let's say you know two let's say twin twins right beautiful twins and you have one of them dressed decently and one of them dressed indecently of course the one that's dressed decently is going to be more beautiful everyone knows this everyone knows this from experience 
Um, and he said, this is, this is what art, and this is what artists in the Renaissance needed to hear. They needed to hear that, you know, nudity itself was not inherently, you know, was not going to make their artwork more beautiful, that there was a way to, to, to depict the human body modest and doing so modestly that would actually accentuate the beauty of the human form. The, the aesthetic dimension you just mentioned, the, the, the deep, um, deep commitment to beauty and holiness, which was very characteristic of, of a, you know, a very rich um, classic Christian theology, um, had wrapped in it, from what I'm understanding here, um, a, a sort of moral, a, a, a proper moral disgust towards things, artwork or things claiming to be artwork that missed the measure and missed you know, in, and so another way of putting it is there was a, a spiritual moral offense at something missing the high mark of aesthetic, you know, sort of moral aesthetic or spiritual aesthetic. And this, I think, is something clearly that contrasts with anything in a lot of the contemporary imagination who just sees art almost always in crass functionalist and and disconnected from any any kind of transcendence and so i don't i think you know i mean the only thing close we can maybe get to it is some of the parents now in, who are finding their children in public schools having pornographic literature and the the outrage that they see it, all the while leaders and conservative leaders saying nothing you know, so I mean, that's about the only comparison I think that I, I can think of in the moment that is matching anything with a semblance of what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. That and that that kind of that moral outrage. I think the Eastern the Eastern Church understands this a little better than we yeah. do. But the the unity of truth and beauty. Uh, right. That they're that they're that you know the. Beauty is really the first form of evangelization. Um, yeah. It is the it is the way that our we you know Christ is beautiful, and that's how we the, in the story of Christ is beautiful. Yeah. And this is how we first understand the truth is that you just you read the Word of God, or you hear the the story of our Lord spoken, or you see His face, and you say, "Yeah, there's something here, absolutely." And then you need to you know you then you go deeper and you learn the substance of it. But um, but you know, beauty is truth, and truth is beauty. And, uh, yeah, that's one of the things that I think, uh, you know, when we think about von Balthasar uh, and his uh, work on beauty, I think. That's so within the Reformed tradition, uh, the ex accent is uh, on truth. In other words, uh, it's almost abstracted from goodness and beauty. In other, you, you can actually uh, kind of uh, hear uh, almost in a, uh, an approach that seems it sort of relegates uh, even moral goodness, uh, as well as beauty to sort of the sideline. And the only thing that you need to think about is whether or not this particular proposition, uh, is true, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but your, your point I think is, is, is right. Uh, it's, I think it goes right to the heart of, you know, what we actually kind of know from evangelism and it's, and, and how evangelism, uh, is, uh, 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 you know, uh, sort of uh, it achieved or how, how it sort of proceeds. And that is, a, you know, when we think about the life of the, our Lord, what we see is 
his goodness, a man who went about doing good. Uh, and we also see the beauty of that life uh, in the, his moral, uh, you know, sort of uh, character, but also in terms of his sacrifice. Didn't, didn't von Balthasar say something like, uh, I knew the Nazis were wrong because they were so ugly? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so like when I, when I look at the first half of the book here, the part one, what I'm seeing you do, and this is a fun thing to think about, is you're basically um, addressing the, li the libel of the dead. Uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about this in, in the show, that essentially what we do is we pat ourselves on the back by making our ancestors look bad, uh, doing the best we can to bring out all the things that were wrong about the past and just ignoring all the stuff that was good. And you've reversed that in the first part of the book helping us see, you know, there really were a lot of things about being a surf that uh, were great. <laughs> <For example. Yeah. laughs> so Absolutely. let's get into that. You know, like when we think about serfdom, you know, when we think of, uh, you know, uh, the path to serfdom, you know, the, that classic kind of libertarian economics, Austrian economics book, you know, uh, yeah. the implication is the last thing you want to be is a serf. But you make the case uh, for serfdom is that being a serf wasn't so bad. Well, so what was it about being a serf that was actually pretty good? Well, the funny thing is that pretty much everything that human being, that Western man wants now and that is considered, uh, that everything that we work for, everything that's, when you say, oh, man, I've got this, I've made it, um, the serfs kind of had built in. There was a, there's, it's, it's hilarious how much of like conspicuous bourgeois consumerism you just serves had. I mean, it was a, it was a given, and uh, like organic know. food, right? Chemicals, man. It was no way to do it, right? So this was um, every 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 tomato, every you know, tomato was was a hundred percent. What is it? BP free or whatever? And uh, but I mean, you know, the gosh, every the 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 smallest plot of land that a surf would have had was about one acre. And, uh, you know, here in southern New Hampshire, if you have an acre of land, you're, you've made it big, uh, really big, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, all of their, all of their um, settlements were, were walkable. Um, because Another it, cool thing that the, the, the Bobos love, you know, you got to have that walkable community. Absolutely. The bourgeois bohemians. You, you remember that book? Bo David Bobos Brooks. Of, yeah, <laughs> Bobos in Paradise. That's right. That's right. They were talking about the Middle Ages. That's what right. – <laughs> don't tell David Brooks, though. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and also, I mean, uh, there some, some studies have estimated that serfs had almost half of the days of the year off from between – um, obviously religious festivals, but some of those festivals and wedding feasts and baptism feasts, some of them would last a week or more. Right. Yeah. And uh, in that period of time, the Lord would give his serfs uh, the time off. So, you know, lots of, it, it, and then, you know, unpolluted air, um, <laughs> no, uh, none of this in really intrusive noise that you get everywhere in the right. world today, right. whether it's airplanes, cars, um, piped music and restaurants and things like that. It was just quiet. Muzak, Muzak. Muzak, yeah. yeah, yeah that's yeah, no, <laughs> now, now, one of the things, you know, one, one way that I think we can make the case for serfs uh, is Hobbiton. Yeah. So, like, when we see, you know, the opening scenes, you know, I'm not a Peter Jackson fan, but maybe uh, most people 
you know, only know as much about Tolkien as Peter Jackson was willing to to kind of give them. <laughs> but when, I think I do. I do think that his portrayal of Hobbiton uh, is fun and is true to the book. And I think m- many people are uh, entranced and taken by it uh, and are wistful for it. Uh, and uh, maybe maybe the reasons why they might feel impatient with it have to do with kind of a well, some of the effects of, of the modern world and how it's sort of disrupted the um, ability that we have to enjoy peace, quiet, good food, company, that kind of stuff. Because there's always a sense that we have that we're missing out on something because we don't have our smartphone with us or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Mostly what you're missing out is, is bad news, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I've heard it retur- referred to as doom scrolling. <laughs> exactly. And, and the funny thing is, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I uh, every, every year around Easter, you get this wash of articles by people who say, you know, I went off Twitter I, you know, for Lent <laughs> and it was the best time of my life. <laughs> and I was so much more engaged with people. I slept better. Um, and then, you know, at the bottom it says, you know, follow him on Twitter. And he's right back to it. It's like Easter day. This is how you, this is how you celebrate Easter is by logging back onto Twitter. Right. right. Um, yeah. And it's, so there's obviously these technologies are highly addictive and very, very evil. And they do no good, but they do lots of harm. Um, but the, uh, but the, the good news is that at least for now, people know that it's not what they really want or it's not what's really good for them. They do it compulsively. Oftentimes they do it because if you're a journalist now, I mean, I don't have a Twitter. I don't know any other journalists, you know, who are working in my, yeah. who, who don't have a Twitter. It's almost, and it's professional suicide. I mean, I'm not, yeah. trying, I'm not trying to martyr myself, but it's, uh, it's no, tough. No. Yeah. And, I, uh, you know, so Tom and I are old enough to remember uh, a world that was even pre-internet and it's almost <laughs> impossible to, to sort of like, uh, recover, you know, the kind of a surprise, I, like when, when, when the internet became a thing, it's almost as though I, I was like in 19, whatever it was when the model T came out and I had only seen horses my entire life. And there's this Model T <laughs> coming into town, chugging and puffing away and, and cranky, you know, making cranky sounds. And initially I was incredulous. I was like, this will never catch on. This is <laughs> yeah. all these people saying that it's going to do this. And I was like, yeah, right. Yeah, right. Uh, so I'm, I'm actually kind of a, a nut, a Luddite uh, to a degree. Uh, I'm uh, not... Uh, a Luddite in practice because of what you just brought out. It's, it's pretty much impossible to function in our society today without a smartphone. Just think about that. Nine, you know, 2008 was in the, when the iPhone uh, was, you know, uh, introduced. And today it's like, you know, I get friend requests from like the poorest parts of the world, some guy in an iPhone. (laughs) (laughs) He needs money for his ministry. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, you know, if you had just turned on that iPhone, maybe you'd be able to pay for the bills for like a half a year. But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) but, but I I guess the, the, the thing that you're doing though, is you're helping us, I think, enter imaginatively into a space where we're able to say, you know, it really was better when there wasn't light pollution. You could look up in the sky at night and, and if there weren't clouds uh, and haze, then 
you might actually see the Milky Way. I mean, how many people have actually seen the Milky Way with the naked eye? I've seen it twice in my life. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's, it is funny because from a greenie perspective, which uh, the left prides themselves on being, how many of them realize that how that the, the engine of modernity, which is, you know, whatever you want to call it, industrialism, consumer capitalism, this is what's destroying the earth. Um, right. And it's not only, and I, I talk about this a little bit later in the book, but it's not only that it's destroying the earth in an abstract sense and that, you know, it'll, it, it'll, it's causing global warming and um, it's, it, it's, it threatens the human population. It threatens the species. That's, I mean, that's all probably true, but it, it also, on a, just on an individual level, it makes it hard for us to enjoy nature. It makes it hard for us to enjoy God's right. creation. And in a way, yeah. this is this is this is silencing God's voice. This is how this yeah. is one of the ways that God makes Himself real to us. So yeah. the the attack on creation is an attack on God. Um, yeah. And I, well, I didn't mean to go down that rabbit hole, but no, no, but this is this I, is I an error. That, yeah, go yeah. ahead, Tom. Yeah, I mean, I think you're you're right on. I, I actually gave a little uh, half of. Presented a uh, part one of a paper last night locally at the the the, the new uh, Blake Center, um, which is very nice, nice place. You're in New Hampshire, so it's not too far from you, I guess. A few hours. So it's um, connected. It's connected with Hillsdale. It's Hillsdale's new uh, Connecticut uh, location. Oh, faith and freedom. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, uh, but but uh, uh, one of my uh, fellow parishioners um, is kind of directing over there, so he was kind enough to host. But one of the things I was talking about is kind of the retrieval work in theology that has been going on that that all, all Christians committed to classic Christian confession have been about retrieving kind of classical understanding of what we go by the metaphysics of creation and just how full and rich it is, um, and how and how you know the the analogous character or the gift character of everything. And one of the questions that came up is, well, what does that look like when we start to actually take it seriously? And I was kind of comparing it to the kind of the, the world that came, you know, after people started to reject that classic vision, one in which they're like you were talking about the Renaissance with the development of a, a notion of the humane, but basically centering on the radically isolated individual, um, disconnected from anything else that, other than what serves his own glory. Um, and then the way, but, but how um, highly isolated and disconnected that vision, you know, ha has, um, you know, basically promoted in, in where we ended up. And I was just talking about exactly that point, the way, you know, contrast that with, all of creation being theophanic, being that which in its own way, um, because of the distinct form and purposes that it has, manifests um, the, the invisible attributes of God in a visible way. Um, and as we see it in the light of Christ, we are able to, of course, see it with, with a clearer lens and, and enjoy something of the gift that it is, and something of God in relation to it. So it opens up a whole different view of your relation, not just to each other, but to the whole of creation than the kind of cheap substitute that the, you know, kind of the modern world um, picked up and ran with. And so I think, you're, you know, what your book highlights and what you're talking about now really is something of that richness, a, a connectedness to the gift character of everything as it's related to God. Um, that is fundamentally missing in, in our 
our contemporary alternative. Yeah, I think too. Um, getting to the subject of evangelism again, are you familiar with Paul King's North? Yeah, uh, yeah. So here's a guy who is uh, about as far to the left on the green agenda as you could possibly be. He's come around the other side of the world, and now he's a Christian. And I think some of us in the conservative world, because we're so sort of freaked out by the Gia worshipers, we 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 lose sight of the fact that uh, interest in the creation. Uh, and, a de- and a desire to enjoy it uh, is a means by which uh, God speaks to us. And uh, when it comes to King's North, you know, basically King's North uh, is uh, disillusioned with the green agenda now because it's been co-opted by basically the corporations, <laughs> the megacorp, you know, scene. And, but, you know, and, and so, you know, the, you're in New Hampshire, Thomas is in Connecticut. We all know what Vermont is about. It, you know, I, I've, I've thought about what, you know, the thing about Vermont and New Hampshire, I mean, anybody who knows anything about New Hampshire knows you guys are the libertarian, you know, sort of place. And then anybody who knows anything about Vermont knows it's kind of the, the, the Bernie Socialist kind of green place. It's almost as though that it represents the fissure that's occurred uh, that Tom was just talking about, you know, this inability to sort of see all this together. So if, if you could have a kind of libertarian uh, sort of pro like enterprise uh, green agenda <laughs> without it, <being, laughs> yeah. it, would, it would kind of look like the Shire. <laughs> it, That's right. Yeah. One of the best things about uh, Vermont is that there are no billboards there. I mean, you go into the place and it's in, and it, billboards are illegal and Walmart's virtually illegal and it's actually kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love Vermont. And uh, the one thing, everything that you said is true, but they, um, it, it is funny that it, Vermont's one of those places that's just where people are so cut off from me. It's, it's so remote that they have really no idea what the implications of their leftward drift are for the most part. Obviously, the people in Burlington do, but you've got yeah. I mean, the, pe- the, the, uh, the people who voted Bernie Sanders into office. The, you know the ordinary people that live out in the in rural Vermont, they all got they're all armed to the teeth. Okay. You know, they don't realize that the Party wants to take wants to take their guns. They don't see any contradiction between you know between socialized medicine and the Second Amendment. And I guess in theory there isn't one, except if you're you know. If you, right. yeah. but, um, have, you, have you ever seen Have you ever seen the Green Mountain Boys machine gun shoot? It's a really it's a it's a it's hilarious. It's on uh, if you go onto YouTube. And just type in the Green Mountain Boys machine gun shoot. It's like the premier machine gun shoot on the East Coast. It's just awesome. <laughs> I will check it out. That's great. I will, I will see if I can go there. It's not invitation. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. So is there anything else maybe in this first part of the book you'd like to get to that we haven't had a chance to talk about? I mean, uh, there are a lot of great things here. Um, necessarily, if anything piques your interest, I'd be happy to. Well, I think uh, why reactionaries uh, don't worship reason. So that would be kind of an interesting one. Why don't, why don't you kind of unpack that a little bit? Why why don't reactionaries worship reason? Yeah, that's um, well. I think we actually the best answer may or may not be the, the answer that I gave in the book because I've been I've been thinking about, a lot about this recently. We already touched on it. Is um, is this this idea that um, you know, beauty is in itself a truth. It's a way of perceiving truth. And, uh, 
and it in most for most of the time it's like our fundamental way of perceiving truth right it's the first it's the way that we first begin to recognize what truth is and very often you know these um the, the most important truths of our lives are not things that can be accessible equally to every dispassionate intellect right um but that is the, that is the Enlightenment project, and that's basically the, the the whole project of modernity, is that if you can, if you can't sit down across from me and make and and you know argue me into the position that you hold, um, it's not worth anything. So Pope Benedict said something to the effect of, um, you know, it's only through you know prayer is faith in action, and it is only by practicing the faith that we begin to see the evidence for God's experience. Um, so this is, so th- th- that is true. And, um, and this is, and that is at its best. That's what tradition is, is this assurance that, you know, that older and wiser people have over generations that says, you know, you young man, you, the, God might not make sense to you. Um, the idea of God might not make sense to you. You might, you might not, um, understand what the benefits of fasting and prayer and penance are because you've never really done them. But you have to trust us who have done it, who, who know it, that it's worth doing. And I'm not saying that you have to do it and then just you will see the benefits. You just have to, you have to try first. You have to practice that. And then, but that, that kind of, that, you know, this tradition, this received wisdom um, that we can test and prove for ourselves through practice um, that tradition is totally con. This I'm gonna. I will just call that tradition. That is totally contrary to the the principles the of the Enlightenment and all thought that's followed the Enlightenment, which is that um, truth truth has to be readily accessible to my you know my five senses and the you know the most basic kind of human logic. Um, it, you have to be able to write it down on a napkin and explain it and make it compelling, or it doesn't exist. It's not true. And, you know, and that uh, so that is the probably too convoluted explanation as to why reactionaries don't worship reason. Yeah, I think that most people intuitively agree with you. I think most people would say, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but then they maybe object to the notion that tradition uh, as, you know, the practice of handing down, you know, handing over uh, is going to always be, uh, I guess, trustworthy. In, in other words, I think a lot of folks will say, well, you know, um, well, you remember, remember, uh, Fiddler on the Roof and, you know, you got Tevier mm-hmm. and he's talking about their traditions, you know, tradition, tradition. <laughs> it's, great. it's great. It's great. I, I, I think it's a, a lot of fun, but I, I actually think that that film is a vindication of tradition or that, that uh, musical is vindication of tradition because at the end you see sort of the, the debris that modernity, uh, has produced, but I think that I, but he's asked at one point, you know, why does your apron have tassels? And he says, I don't know. (laughs) 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 And and that's what kind of what you're getting at is the idea that if you can't explain it, it's worthless when maybe the, the more reasonable, and this is the fun thing to, 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 to kind of like blow my people's minds, but maybe the more reasonable option is, well, just because you doesn't, you don't know, is not proof that there's no reason. It's just that maybe it means that you're stupid. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah. That's what that's what frightens people about 
tradition. I mean, it is the it is the idea that someone else knows better than they do, mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, not only knows better than they do, but can know better than is better at knowing than they are. Um, that we're not all equal in that sense. That there are some people who are wiser and more experienced. Uh, oh, the Psalms say something about that. I I, uh, I am wiser than the aged because I have because I keep Thy law. Um, that's I mean that's absolutely true. You can the, the, a, a young holy man is clearly wiser than I'm trying to think of uh, someone like Noam Chomsky or Gore Vidal. Yeah, they're 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 posers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Put him next to put him next to you know Saint Francis of Assisi when he's twenty three and and uh, <laughs> you know throwing off his robe and kissing the leper and and trying to rebuild. I mean, who even on the left who doesn't who wouldn't say that's that's wisdom? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So this, this the other half of the book though is uh, it, you know in addressing the situation that we that we find and we've been do- doing some of that as we've talked. So the first half of the book is a re- an attempt to recover the wisdom of the past. Things weren't as bad as you were told. Everybody in the Middle Ages didn't believe in the flat earth. They, a lot of them <laughs> yeah. knew the earth was round. You know, that kind of stuff. Sure, uh, yeah. And then the, then the second part is this is now, and you're you know, looking at a sense, uh, in a sense, things aren't as good as we think. So the past is wasn't as bad as you thought. The present right. is not as good as you think. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. So you've got uh, chapter eleven among the champagne socialists. I think I know who you're talking about. You used to call them limousine liberals. Um, <laughs> the humane economy, the view from Nazareth. That's chapter twelve. Uh, all news is fake news. Now that's a fascinating title. I, I agree with you, and I'd like to maybe get into that one a little bit. Um, <laughs> towards a more blissful ignorance, we got to talk about that one. <laughs> Technoholics Anonymous. We've already touched on it a little bit. The patient arts. I, I think that's that's good. Musings of a liber, uh, human liberationist. Yeah, that's good. The strenuous life. Bringing in Teddy Roosevelt there. Anyway, uh, and then the conclusion of the coming dark age, which I think you probably are going somewhere that maybe, uh, you know, different authors in the past have gone, kind of like, you know, Rod Dreher and so forth. Yeah. But I guess uh, when, when we look at this, I'd like to talk about uh, the chapter 13, uh, you know, title, All News is Fake News. What do you mean by that? Modern news, uh, news as we know it now really comes uh, to of age or is, is the modern kind of way of doing media is really invented by William F. Buckley, who mm. is in many ways admirable, but in many ways not so much. He was the, he was the real pioneer of newstainment, of the idea that you know the, the news should be done in a way that's entertaining so that it becomes a marketable product. Mm. And, uh, and so this um, – he, he – wouldn't have envisioned it going nearly as far as it does now, but um, the the uh, when you when you treat news as a product to be sold, then obviously it changes it changes the way that news is reported. Um, it because uh, opinion obviously is a lot more popular than facts, right? Because everyone has an opinion, they like to hear their own opinions echo back at them, and they also like to get angry reading the opinions of people that they disagree with. Uh, the uh, so this idea that it has to be um, that news has to be something that's eye catching that you can you can use to sell ads or subscriptions. Um, this is uh, yeah this is this changes the way that we that that we do media, and so 
what modern the, we see the fallout from that everywhere now today, where um, whether it, people journalists who don't wait to break stories, who just run with it, um, any 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 gossip, any rumor that they hear. Um, the yeah, this um, the the way that that even straight reporting has been infected by opinion. That there's no that there's not even an attempt to make you know an objective analysis or an objective report on what's going on. Yeah, I think that I think you know as I as I think about this, you know, I uh, grew up in a, a world of uh, you know Walter Cronkite, uh, you know Brinkley, and I can't remember his partner's name, but he, there was a there was a at least a, the aspiration. Uh, to tell it like it was. Yeah. Uh, now, if you analyzed the presentation closely, you could more or less discern where the person's convictions were. <laughs> but, at least, but at least there was this idea that, okay, you know, like Cronkite always signed up, and that's the way it was, you know. <laughs> yeah. Now, does anybody do that anymore? I don't know. I mean, I... Uh, Today, you know, you've got entire news networks that don't even pretend, don't even aspire. Seems like you know, may, maybe Fox News with re, with regard to its its way it pitches itself, um, right? You know, but uh, but I guess you know um, that brings up the kind of the the tension that we see between or the tug of war. I think we sh- we 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 see between truth and um, profit or truth and interest um, expressed economically, um, and how that undermines um, both the quality of reporting and the, I guess the the, the livability of our world. You know, I you know when we think about say what happened with the COVID thing, you know, I think we all suspected all along that there were some vested interests <laughs> and uh, those vested interests were not hard to discern but nobody in the media was interested or in the mainstream media was interested they wanted in, to touch it yeah no one wanted to go there um and why was that well it doesn't again take much imagination to see that there was a connection between self-interest income for the network's sponsorship that kind of stuff so I, I, I think that's all. Under- I'd like to dig into a little bit deeper your your, your take on William F. Buckley, though, mm, you know, sure. in terms of. So so when you like, you know, Buckley is somebody that, you know, Tom and I remember and obviously yeah. you remember. I don't know how many people still have a, a you know, sort of a, a kind of a, an image of Buckley. In them. But, I, you know, it's firing line, you know, firing lines. Yeah. That he's leaning back like this. Yeah, <laughs> and making right. some. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know, know making four new, four or five new words every <laughs> that's right. show. Maybe more. That's right. That's right. That's right. So, yeah, he. Uh, in fact, uh, I remember he had a calendar that was like the word of the day calendar. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but anyway, kind uh, of. Let's dig into that a little more. So, so what was it about Buckley's approach that you know you're bringing to the surface here that? undermined undermines uh what we should be looking for in news you mentioned you know entertainment but how did he do it well there's uh i think there's there's two there's two real ways and i'm going to try to remember both of them as i explain <laughs> um, and by the way for anyone that's listening i don't want to sound like i'm, I'm impugning buckley i just uh, <laughs> i think that it's i think that this there is 
this is there's some truth to to what I say. Well, you'd hope so. <laughs> but it's just you, say, you can't say um, it makes no sense to say this is my opinion. It may be wrong. If you think it may be wrong, it's not your opinion. <laughs> so so one of the things that Buckley does is um, he gives the impression that because he and his guests are so intelligent, he gives the impression that after after one hour of of discussion, of conversation, you've really boiled things down to their fundamentals, right? You've really got to the heart of the matter. Um, mm-hmm. And so it becomes the uh, – and so the emphasis becomes not on who has – who, you know, and this is news, right? It becomes not not who is the more informed, who not who uh, who knows who's more even more intelligent. It's who is a better rhetorician. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. So rhetoric it's has its place. What's yeah. that? The triumph of rhetoric over truth. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and rhetoric has its place, as we all know. Um, but it it is dangerous when people are getting their information from a rhetorician. Yeah. Um, there, that's a different function, uh, and um, I, I'm going to blank on the second thing. I, I <laughs> what, what, let's let's. let's <laughs> no, <laughs> well, I mean, I think uh, uh, there was a recent documentary about uh, him and Gore Vidal and and their uh, debates, and um, so Buckley, of course, was pretty heavy hitter and, and an intellect uh, intellectual. And of course, Vidal uh, was equally impressive and intimidating. And you had these two guys who just hated each other's guts. <laughs> and it was just like watching, you know, Ali Frazier, you know, intellectual Ali Frazier. <laughs> and uh, we don't have anything like that today. I mean, I, I, is there anything even remotely close to that kind of intellectual, uh, I guess, uh, ability to sort of interact and, and do so spontaneously. Uh, and is there anything like that on television right now? It was entertaining. Did we actually learn anything through that? Well, we learned that they like, didn't like each other. <laughs> right. Oh yeah. Well, and that's the funny thing, isn't it? Cause um, I'm sure that there, if you wanted to, I'm sure you could find people that could do what Buckley and Vidal did, mm-hmm. but who yeah. would watch it? Who would want to see it? And yeah. I think that that's the that's the main that's the main problem that we're pointing out, isn't it? Is that once you start pandering to the lowest common denominator, there's no end to it. Yeah, but yeah. we probably couldn't get a job, you know, today. That's He's, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's it's, yeah. it's it started it started something that uh, has taken us to where we are now. Yeah, right. because it becomes labeling now. I mean, you, you think of the kind of look at the way, for example, you'll have, uh, say, a Fox News with a Tucker Carlson do a show and then watch another network who competes with it have like a Joy Reid on MSNBC and just unloads about everything racial and white supremacist about the other show's interpretation. And while they f- flip the back and forth, so it has really become a, a name calling um, ad hominem abusive you know, kind of, uh, sport. Um, and, and it really is disgusting. And and like you said, if people just feed, um, you know, off of that kind of, that kind of sport, they, they're, they're doing damage to themselves. And I know there is a damage done to the culture that only has that kind of option. Right. Yeah. So uh, we're getting close to kind of wrapping up here, but I'd like to touch on at least, uh, briefly, the uh, 16th and 18th chapters. So you have the patient arts, 
uh, and then the strenuous life. So when, when you say the patient arts, what are you, what do you, what are those arts? What, what constitutes patient arts? So the patient arts is really, uh, I think, I think for me, it's one of the more important chapters because it, it is the, it's the, well, let me zoom back a little bit. So I, one of the, one of the things that I always try whenever I write something is to, is to make it applicable to try to give people something that they can, if you, if you agree with me, here's what I think you can do about it. And so that's the second half of the book is really, I tried very hard to, to say, you know, this is what we used to have. That's part, that's the first half that we're talking about the history. The second half, I really tried to make about, you know, this is what, if, if this alarms you, if you agree, if you want to get this stuff back, this is what you can do. Mm-hmm. And the, the patient arts was, was, I think was the last chapter that I wrote because it was just the stuff I didn't have. I couldn't fit anywhere else because mm-hmm. um, these are the things that um, the patient arts is really just the word that I gave to the things that I do that help me to stay sane in the modern world uh, and mm-hmm. to try to um, try to cultivate some some truth and some goodness and some beauty in my everyday life. It's the it's the it's the really particularly the things that. You know, you want to, we want to change the world. We want to fix society. We want to build community. But the patient arts are the things that you can do, that you and I can do, you know, on our own all day, just day after day, um, to just to just make our lives a little better and a little more reactionary. So, and, so name, name two or three. What are, what are two or three things that we can do on a daily basis that, that will get us further along in that journey to that reactionary life or <laughs> sort of express a reactionary way of thinking. Yeah. So one of them, and it's, uh, it's maybe a little surprising. One of them is making tea the right way. Oh, the right <laughs> way. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, this is, I mean, in, uh, in, in most cultures, in most Asian cultures where obviously tea is, indigenous, yeah. this is a hugely important part of the day. And there's a reason for it. Because making tea correctly, I mean, making a good cup of tea is a, really is an art that takes a lot of practice, that takes a lot of concentration. Um, and it is, it, is an, it is an amazing ritual. I mean, you don't, even if you don't do a full Japanese tea ceremony, boiling water, um, taking it off at the right moment, getting it down to the correct temperature, um, finding the best kind of tea. And good tea is not that expensive. I mean, finding yeah. the, the right kind of tea. Um, finding how how long exactly to brew it for, brewing it in a you know in a in a pot, a proper pot, as opposed to microwaving a, a mug, right? Um, <laughs> it's just the, the 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 art of making a cup of tea is just this thing that you know it's the, it requires this kind of small genius. Um, it's a creative act, and it's a very very simple one that you can do several times a day. But um, it's like smoking a cigarette. It's like taking a smoke break, right? To just do this this thing that that requires your full concentration. Um, and that at the end of it is, a, is kind of a thing of beauty. So so, yeah, so, yeah. What I've heard you describe there is there's a tradition of tea making, Yeah, but, but it's not an arbitrary tradition that actually is grounded in reality. The, it, the, the things that you do in, according to the tradition actually do contribute to a better cup of tea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so you and have the to, enjoyment of it at the end, right? Exactly. Right. right. So you <laughs> have to conform to this, uh, slow down because you can't rush it. Mm-hmm. All of these different things. That's good stuff. It just brings delight to you, you know, yeah. and that's, yeah. Yeah, that's something that we don't, we don't have, we don't have delight in, 
things well done. Mm-hmm, and yeah. it is a small thing, but it is uh, it becomes kind of addictive when you when you say, yeah. hey, I, I did a good job, even if it's a very, very small thing. Yeah. Um, I'll do I'll do two more real quick. Um, another one is letter writing. Uh, uh, okay. I because I, I think that anyone who's who, who you know who who's who actually has used a pen or a pencil yeah. in the last <laughs> yeah. ten years, except to make a little to make a grocery list, right? Even that you probably right. use your phone now. Right. When you write a letter, letter writing is a totally unique form of communication. Yeah, and I think that if any anyone who's written a letter knows that, not just in the sense that the the use of paper and ink is so satisfying. It's a full aesthetic experience. Right. Yeah. The way that you write is fundamentally different than the way a journalist writes an article, the way that you write an email, the way you text, the way you right. talk. Um, you become, you, I don't know what it is, but if you, when you write a letter, you become more conscious of the need for beauty and communication than in any other, I believe, I mean, having written books, having written poems, yeah, having yeah. written articles, um, you never want to write more beautifully. You never have a greater appreciation for the beauty of language than when you sit down to write a letter. And also, it's just one of these things that it feels good and it makes people happy to get a letter. Yeah, right? Yeah. It shows that you've spent this, that you've really had this one-sided conversation with some. You've given someone this all this time. Yeah. Um, and it's just this this one small thing that I think that it really impoverished us to lose this this habit of letter writing. I'll never forget as a kid in school, this is long before, long before we had the, the, the computers and all of this, that one of the, one of the things that, I mean, just open your world is if you could get a, the girl you like to actually give you a handwritten letter, yeah. you, would, you would walk around with that thing and treasure it. <laughs> you can't do that with it. You know, what are you going to walk around with a text now? And say, Look, you know? I mean, you just, it was a whole different thing. And maybe that's a, a kind of, a, a, a kind of cheap example of it. But I, I, I still think even that this is something someone took the time and had to reach a certain level of boldness to to have a social interaction, and they put something of themselves in a tangible form, and it was passed on. And it, there's a preciousness to it that even all these years later, you still it has impacted and affected me. Yeah, I I, I think about just how uh, great uh, C.S. Lewis or, or or Tolkien were with the correspondence. They, they, yeah. just, they just put me to shame. You know, I'll, I'll say to myself when I get something that I know I need to respond to, man, I don't have time for this. <laughs> you know, I, I've given all of yeah. my literary you know, sort of energy to writing five pages this morning. I, I get a pass. <laughs> but these guys, you know, uh, they're writing books and doing things and then writing, you know, multiple, you know, you know many pages uh, in, 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 yeah. in cor- through correspondence with yeah. to one person. That's the thing about it. Like if I, if I say to myself, well, you know, if I get published in World Magazine, I mean, that's you know, ten thousand people. I've, I've you know, you know, that's worth the enter- the effort. <laughs> One person, <laughs> unless somebody collects them and puts them into some book that gets published someday as a as a. Well, we but how many how, how many how many letters did those guys write that never were never discovered? Yeah, I think about and I. I mean, it would be. Uh... I was going to say, we don't have any great writers anymore. We have us, right? We're great, <laughs> we're great writers. But I mean, the fact that, the, you know, I, I have a copy of yours, Jack, the, the collection of uh, C.S. Lewis's letters that yeah. I love. And that's a genre that will never ex- that may never exist again. Yeah. yeah. The collection of authors' letters. Yeah. Another yeah. thing is handwriting. I've, I've noticed yeah. uh, just the deterioration of handwriting. 
Uh, my kids um, actually admire my handwriting, and I consider my handwriting very mediocre. I look at the handwriting of my mother or my grandmother. I've got letters that they that that you know I inherited from them, and I'm just astonished at just how fluid uh, and um, beautiful uh, the handwriting is. You know, sometimes, you know, I, for example, here's my Quaco pen, you know, I, uh, I, I use for, for much of my writing, but if you tried to read my stuff, you would never know what I would, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. And I have, um, I don't do it. I'm not as good with articles, but my books so far, I mean, my one and a half book, <laughs> I, uh, I do write by hand. On, yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. You know, yeah, legal pads and pencils, but yeah. It's, yeah, uh, I do the same too. The first run is by hand, then then I move it over. Yeah, it drives, I, I can't do it any other way because yeah. I don't know. It's just you need that slow, deliberate. Yes. Yeah. Right. And Lewis talks about this too. They, he, uh, some, they, he talked about how, because he used a nut pen. Um, he would dip yeah. it in inkwell, and oh, he wow. said that taking he said that taking the nub and dipping it in the ink every couple of you know every three letters gave him a chance to pause and think. Because yeah. I mean, I can type faster than I can think. I'm sure that you know that's yeah, true. Right. You guys do. If I if I if I don't write by hand, I'd end up spending way more time than I yeah. would otherwise. I'm constantly deleting and going back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, this is probably this is probably a good place to wrap things up. Sure. Um, so, uh, Mike, how can people follow you? I mean, is there a place, well, you mentioned your Substack. Is, is there yeah. anything else that maybe people can look up to, to connect with you? And I'm happy to say that there's not, no, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, no, if, uh, if, so it's the, my Substack is, if you go on, it's called the common man. I think it's, um, commonman.substack.com and, uh, or if you just Google, Michael Warren Davis, the common man, it'll come up. Um, but if, uh, if you're, I mean, I, they sh it should be pretty easy to find the reactionary mind from there. Yeah, um, and yeah. then if they, I, I, I hope and I pray that the next, my next book is even better. And if anyone's interested in reading that, then uh, that information will come through the Substack too. So. Yeah. What, what are you working on? What's the next book? It's called the, the times are wretched and it comes yeah. from a, a homily from St. Augustine, homily right. 311, I think, where he says, um, you all say that the times are bad, the times are wretched, um, but if you change yourselves, you'll change the times. Mm. And so it's, uh, it's about taking how we can take uh, personal responsibility, what we can do to try to rebuild the church, to try to rebuild Christian civilization, not, not just voting even harder for the next Republican yeah. candidate, not just reading more news, sending more tweets, but what, we can, what we, tangible steps that we can take to try to to try to rebuild the church, yeah. rebuild Christendom. So. Yeah, well, we've talked about Francis. You know, it was bad when he was uh, on the scene. And then Augustine, it was bad when he was on the scene. Has it ever been good? Well, for the serfs. That's right. Just the dark ages. <laughs> yeah, this, this is not the first time the world has ended. So anyway, uh, thanks a lot for listening to the Theology Podcast. We really do encourage you. Uh, to check out Michael's work. We'll, uh, we'll have a link to his Substack in the show notes. We'll also have a link to his book, uh, The Reactionary Mind, uh, published by Regnery. And uh, we'll have uh, maybe a link to Amazon, maybe even a link to Regnery for that. Um, 
And uh, we do appreciate, too, that you got to the end of another show. If this is a, a, you know, a habit that you have, uh, listening all the way to the end, uh, we have a number of people who support us uh, in different ways uh, through our Patreon account, through the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, and we appreciate everything that people do to help make uh, the show possible. Uh, the gifts that people give actually do pay the bills. Uh, there are bills uh, that uh, we incur in producing this, the, the content. Tom and I and Glenn don't take any money, but, but that doesn't mean that somebody doesn't get paid. <laughs> there are people who need to get paid in order for this show to exist. And so thank you uh, for your contributions. Anyway, uh, we'll be in touch next week, hopefully. Bye-bye. The Theology Pubcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you enjoy the Theology Pubcast, you might enjoy one of our other podcasts, Got a Minute, featuring Larson Hicks and Pastor Rich Lusk. Rich theological discussion guaranteed to leave you edified.